This is The Medical Republic. My name's Felicity Nelson. And I'm Francine Crimmins. This episode, I'm catching up with a lawyer to dig deep into GP employment contracts. It turns out if you're employed under the wrong conditions, you could be owed a lot of money from your practice. But first, menopause. It happens to every woman, but what if you could delay it or stop it in its tracks entirely? Well, at least that's what one company claims that they can do. It was reported this week in mainstream media like it was a totally viable option for women to have the hormones of a 35-year-old well into their 70s. Just to say that it set off our alarm bells straight away. Felicity, what on earth is this bizarre news story? So basically this UK company is charging women thousands of dollars to extract a bit of their ovary, put it on ice for a few decades... Uh, and then slice it up and reinsert it into their body so that it can start producing hormones again uh, when they start going through menopause. And so this is for women who might want to stay young forever and have children a lot later, is that correct? And periods forever. Yeah, it sounds um, very interesting. (laughs) So what caught my eye was the headline in some of these stories was that they were claiming they could delay menopause by 20 years, which is a pretty big claim. Um, And you would expect, scrolling through the story, that there would be some really quite significant evidence to back that up, because the more extraordinary the claim, the more extraordinary the evidence needs to be. And I thought it was quite interesting that there was very little evidence. And so I thought what I'd do is is try and get a few IVF experts on the phone. So, So I reached out to Melbourne IVF and Monash IVF and immediately got some uh, gynecologists on the phone who were really shocked and kind of outraged by the word I use is flabbergasted by what they um, had heard in the news. And this is what Dr. Alex Polyakov, uh, the clinical director of Melbourne IVF, had to say. I think it's nonsensical. I, I think that it requires, initially, it requires a laparoscopy. So we do this for fertility preservation, right? So if someone, a young woman comes in, she's diagnosed with cancer and we don't have time to freeze eggs, we would do this procedure. It's not new. So what they're doing is they're going in laparoscopically. They take one ovary or half of the ovary and they freeze it. And what they're saying is that when the woman goes through menopause, they can put it back and it will start functioning and that will delay menopause. Well, first of all, when they put it back, it's actually quite variable how long it will function. So it might function for a month or two months or three months, but it never functions for 20 years. That's just not going to happen. Because when you freeze ovarian tissue, there is a lot of damage to it. So when you thaw it, only about you know, 10, 20% of eggs survive and can produce the hormones. So they do this procedure at the moment for women who have cancer and want to preserve their fertility. But what happens when they reinsert the thawed out ovaries is that they only usually last for a couple of months. Um, and it's enough time for them to maybe get an egg out of it and have IVF and potentially get pregnant and there's been about 200 300 babies worldwide born through this procedure which is fantastic um the problem is with a woman who's going through menopause only having hormones functioning from your thought out ovary for a couple of months that's that's not a really great sort of improvement over taking hormone tablets so um, hormone replacement therapy which is essentially exactly the same hormones Um, So what you really would be having to do is, as a a woman going through menopause, would be to have a bit of your ovary put back into your body and then come back a couple of months later, get another bit of your ovary put back in. 
And then there's the potential of it not even functioning, so not producing hormones. And the reason this is, is because when you freeze ovaries and you thaw them out, about 80 to 90% of the eggs die. And that's because there's no blood supply in the freezing process. It takes a few days for the blood vessels to kind of grow back into the ovary tissue. Um, So it's, it's a very delicate, difficult process that has a really high failure rate. It's very difficult to see why a woman going through menopause would choose that option over something that's very reliable, like hormone replacement therapy. So I spoke to another expert that said that if you take hormone replacement therapy for five years, there's no evidence to show that there's any adverse events from that um, whatsoever. So it's a what they're offering here is an incredibly expensive service that would cost you maybe $10,000 to have the first procedure. And then freezing it is another $500 every single year. And then you'd have to have the procedure to have it put back in. And it can be put back in in several different places. So for cancer patients, sometimes they'll put it back where the ovary was in the first place. The idea is that it would start to go back to its normal monthly cycle and the woman could get pregnant naturally, uh, which is great. Sometimes, however, they just uh, insert it into someone's arm, so just under the skin. And surprisingly, it can actually the tissue can actually live there and produce follicles. Um, And the cool thing about this is uh, the follicle, as it grows, it it becomes about two centimetres wide. And so you can know kind of when it's, you know, it's cooked and ready to go and you can stick a syringe in and suck up the egg and then use that for IVF. Uh, So it's kind of awesome, but also like that's really kind of creepy. Does a woman going through menopause really want to have a lump appearing on her arm every month? It's, it's a bit, you can see why you would go through that if you wanted a baby, but if you could just have pills, why wouldn't you just go with the pills when they're so cheap? It makes no sense. It's amazing reproductive technology. And as you've said, there is a time and a place for it. And it's great, especially for younger women who may have had other medical therapies that have reduced their fertility or possibly taken away their fertility altogether. But for older women, it seems like an absolute time and money waste. The women who are thinking about it, the women in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, it's actually not terribly successful to remove part of their ovary because that tissue, when you put it back in, um, will is, has a shorter lifespan than if you remove that tissue from a 20-year-old. So really, to get that benefit that they're trying to offer women, you really would have to be asking women in their 20s to undergo this procedure, um, which comes with its own risks. All surgery has risks, risks of infection, <laughs> and reducing their own fertility in the short term, fertility that they might not ever get back. Uh, so, I mean, from my perspective, it's having spoken to these experts, it seems ethically questionable at best. Um, and the other thing I would say is that I called the company on the phone and spoke to them and I sent them this story and asked them to respond because you can imagine it's quite complicated. Maybe they have some really good ideas about why this would work in the future even though maybe it doesn't work now (laughs) but they um didn't respond so uh yeah interesting well there you go another (laughs) case of mainstream media sensationalizing a medical procedure that doesn't really stack up in the medical republic books so next up we've got our hot topic from dr karen price Dr. Price is a GP based in Melbourne. She's also a co-administrator of GPs Down Under and a PhD candidate at Monash University. 
Well, we thought we'd talk about sexism and tie that into the recent furor over the government proposal for domestic violence counselling. And certainly online, we find that it's a very hot topic. So the proposal is that people in intimate partner violence relationships are offered uh, counselling. And a lot of those tenders are being were occurring through faith-based organisations. So very well-meaning and, um, of course, uh, trying to create a nice family is uh, a great thing to do. But um, it's very misguided in um, situations where there is uh, a, a huge power differential. And it's often women who experience that, but, of course, uh, men can be in that situation. On Twitter, the outpouring from many um, health providers in this space was instructive. So there were psychologists, psychiatrists, general practitioners, and we also heard from women who'd been themselves in that situation. They expressed uh, a feeling of unsafety and uh, a feeling of fear that the repercussions for what they said in the um, counselling were, were significant threats to their safety or their children's safety or their animals' safety. So in normal couple therapy counselling, um, there's an assumed agreement that there's a 50-50 responsibility um, and that's absolutely not the case if it's a female experiencing the violence, which it often is, not always. We also talked a little bit on social media in this very interesting time because it seems like all the lines converge uh, about Louise Stone's work on sexual assault uh, for female doctors and the experiences of sexism of, of, of female doctors, which we also talked about. So it's a whole layer of um, different experiences and um, not conflating one with the other, but um, perhaps just looking at how we respond to it, both as um, GPs and as people and as a society, that we probably need to do a lot more listening to this in our culture and face the rather ugly underbelly of how um, power can operate. Many GPs in Australia get treated like contractors when they're actually employees. This so-called sham contracting results in doctors being underpaid and the practice has started to draw attention from the regulator. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Mai Lin Dang, a lawyer and the managing director at Metis Law here in Sydney. Mai Lin is an expert on sham contracts. She co-authored a piece in the Medical Republic on the topic last year. So welcome to the show. Thank you. So first of all, what is a sham contract? A sham contract is a situation where a principal engages a worker to provide services as a contractor when at law, that work is actually an employee and should be engaged as an employee. So sometimes the mischaracterization is not intentional and arises from a misunderstanding of what constitutes an employee as opposed to a contractor. But in other situations, it is intentional and it's done for the purposes of minimising costs to the business. A principal who engages an independent contractor assumes less onerous legal and regulatory obligations than an employer engaging an employee. Also, an independent contractor is not entitled to certain benefits ordinarily available to employees, such as annual leave, long service leave, or personal carer's leave. This is a common reason why principals choose to engage a person as a contractor rather than an employee. So it's for this reason that if a court determines that a principal has been characterising and treating a worker as an independent contractor in circumstances where they are more properly characterised as an employee, 
the court can actually deem that worker to be an employee and ensure that they receive all their benefits and entitlements and all their back pay. So a principal can also be liable to penalties and fines for breaching legislation, such as taxation legislation and superannuation legislation. So how does this affect individual GPs? It seems like they have quite a few rights if they are actually being engaged in the wrong sort of contract. Yes, so from uh, a GP owner, um, a practice owner's perspective, um, you need to make sure that you understand the type of relationship that you're trying to enter into and properly characterise it. So if you're um, looking to engage someone who's integral to the business, so GP practice, for example, um, you need GPs, so it's very unlikely or high risk to engage a GP as an independent contractor in different circumstances, of course. Um, you need to then look at the nature of the relationship, how that person fits in within the business, in particular two factors, the control that the owner has over the individual worker and how much that individual worker is integrated into the actual business. So the more control and the more integrated that worker is within the business, the more likely they are going to look like an employee as opposed to um, an independent contractor. From a worker's perspective, being mischaracterised would result in, as I mentioned before, possibly being underpaid and not being able to receive the full suite of benefits that an employee would otherwise be entitled to. What are the telltale signs that a GP might be signing a sham contract? So the telltale signs are Firstly, looking at whether or not it's referred to as a contractor agreement, a lot of times the, the employer and the employer will characterise the relationship by saying in the contract that it's an independent contractor relationship when in fact it's not. Um, and it's not when, firstly, the practice, for example, might dictate the hours of the worker what hours they work, the nature of the work that they do, whether or not they can refuse work. So the element of control over the work, where they perform that work as well. And if they have, um, if they start to look like they're a part of the business, so things such as having a business card with the, with the practices logo on it, um, having an email address with um, the company's name. If there are photos on the website. If the photos on the website um, and it looks like they are a part of that business as opposed to being a consultant to the business. But again, it's it's a very difficult area because there's no one single thing that will make a worker an employee as opposed to a contractor. It's the whole factual matrix. And a court will look at the entire um, relationship and how that person is integrated and whether or not they are controlled by the practice to determine. What can GP owners do to minimise this risk of accidentally creating a sham contract? Yeah, so um, the first thing is to understand what it is that you're trying to, or who it is that you're trying to involve in the business. It does depend on the circumstances. So if, for example, you have um, a big database of patients and you only have two GPs, that that may be um, 
inadequate resources to service those, those patients. And so in those circumstances, a GP who is engaged on an ongoing basis in order to allow you to service those patients on an ongoing basis is unlikely or less likely to be a contractor because they're integral to the business. On the flip side, um, if in that same business or that same practice you have um, three or four GPs and you just need someone to replace a GP when they're sick on occasional basis, then there's more likely that you can engage that individual as, as a contractor. If you've been able to characterise that individual as a contractor, one way to minimise the risk of a court characterising that worker as, a, as an employee is to contract with either a company or a trust or a partnership. And the reason for that is the, a company or a partnership or a trust can't at law be an employee. So you've created um, an extra gateway between the employer and the employee. For example, under superannuation legislation, the ATO has, has held that independent contractors who are engaged through an entity alleviates the obligation on the employer to pay superannuation. In other words, you've contracted through an entity, there's an arm's length relationship. So for superannuation purposes, that entity is is not an employee and doesn't need to be paid. The employer doesn't need to pay super for that employee. But the thing to remember is you can be characterised as an employee under different legislation. So you might be characterised as an independent contractor for the purposes of superannuation, but still be characterised as an employee for tax purposes. So the characterisation can change from legislation to legislation. But um, the structure of that arrangement is one way to minimise the risk. And the other very simple way to minimise the risk is have a really clear contract that specifies things such as who is responsible for determining work hours, what work needs to be performed, which party bears the risk of defective work. So contractors usually bear the risk. If something's gone wrong, they need to fix it and they could possibly um, make a loss as a result of fixing defective work. Um, other things to consider is who provides equipment and tools for the work and whether or not the worker can work for other businesses. And then cover off things such as who pays for workers' compensation insurance, workers' superannuation, PAYG. Um, so tie up all those issues to make sure that you move it closer to an independent contractor if that's the intention or an employee if that's the intention. I did want to ask, has there been any cases in general practice? Mm, absolutely. In, uh, in 2008, there was um, a case called Offgang and Kaminsky um, nominees in, uh, in Victoria, where a doctor by the name of Dr Offgang was found to be an employee rather than an independent contractor. So in this case, Kosminski Nominees was the service provider to the medical practice and it engaged Dr. Ofgang. So the court considered a few factors. Firstly, it looked at control um, and it found that 
Dr. Kosminski from Kosminski Nominees decided who did what in the practice and gave directions and exercise control. So the employer was dictating the work of the employee. So while Dr. Ofgang himself had the ultimate discretion in the way that he carried out the work, the court found that that's expected of a medical profession. Professional. So he, um, Dr. Ofgang, made those decisions, but ultimately the day to day work was controlled by the employer. Also, Dr. Ofgang had been working the practice for eight years and hadn't been employed by anybody else or hadn't provided services to anybody else. And the court held that there was an expectation that, they, that Dr. Ofgang couldn't provide services to anybody else. The doctor also worked out of the premises of the employer. And aside from a stethoscope that the doctor supplied, everything else was supplied by the employer. So computers, furniture, administrative staff and other medical equipment. Now, Kosminski claimed that if Dr. Ofgang worked anywhere else, he, the doctor couldn't claim any rights over patient goodwill, so the relationships with, with the patients, and that was set out in their contract. So again, um, another identifier that this is an employee relationship rather than um, an a contractor relationship. Now, Dr. Ofgang paid for his own professional indemnity insurance and AMA membership, but the court found that this is not an uncommon practice, particularly for GPs working, say, in public hospitals. They, they tend to do that. So it wasn't a piece of evidence that helped Kosminski. And the other interesting fact was that Dr. Ofgang received as remuneration a percentage of the clinic's uh, billings. But again, the court held this is not unusual in an employee-employer relationship and didn't help Kosminski's case. So after considering the entire factual matrix of that case, the court found that Dr. Ofgang wasn't carrying on a business of his own and he was in fact an employee and he was awarded over $120,000 for unpaid holiday pay and superannuation. So significant sum of back pay. That's um, amazing hearing the eight years part that yeah. it took him that long almost to mm. um, work out that he was in a sham contract situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, there could be many more GPs out there. Yeah, I mean, one of the feedback that we had from the article that we co-wrote uh, was that there were many GPs out there who were aware of other GPs who had been independent contractors for a very long time. And one, if it's a GP practice, like I said before, it's very difficult to argue that you're not providing an integral service to the GP. And two, the longer you're with that GP practice, the less likely you're going to look like an independent contractor. Yes, so there's a lot there for people to consider. Mylin, thank you so much for um, going through sham contracts with us and how to spot one. Uh, we really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So now it's time for our quirky medical history fact. So you might remember a little while ago we had an episode where we interviewed a doctor who worked in Antarctica. He was there over a summer season. What you may not know is that doctors who work in Antarctica over a winter season are almost always the only doctors on a base. And that means that they need some rather bizarre health modifications, but basically you have to go and have an elective appendectomy, 
before you travel. And I know what you're thinking because I thought the same thing. So why not just get it removed in Antarctica if you have a problem? So the short answer is simple. So firstly, if you're the only doctor in Antarctica, you have important jobs to do. One, you have to be there to treat everyone else. And secondly, Antarctica is so remote. So basically, if anything went wrong or you did get sick, there would be no one there that could help you. You are literally out in the cold. Okay, but why specifically the appendix? Yeah, so as most things, it comes with a history. So a man in the 1950s was an Australian explorer and he had an emergency appendix removal and he was on Heard Island at the time. It was very expensive and really, really hard to evacuate him. So it became a law for all Australian explorers to get their appendix removed from the 1950s. But something happened in the 1960s which really cemented this rule in place. And I'm sorry for anyone who's Russian for the following pronunciations. But basically, a Russian GP called Leonard Rogosov went to Antarctica in the year 1960, and he was the only doctor stationed at the Novolaraskaya station. And while there, he developed an appendicitis. So before long, the 27-year-old was tired, weak, nauseous. He had pain down his right side, all classic symptoms. And the worst part was just how remote he was. So the journey to Russia from the Antarctic took 36 days by sea at that time. And the ship that he got off on wouldn't be coming back for another year. And flying was pretty much impossible because of the snow blizzards. So you can imagine. I can see what was about to happen here. Oh, can you? I can. (laughs) So he realised that his only chance of surviving was to operate on himself. So the commander of the base had to get permission from Moscow because if something went wrong it could really reflect badly on the whole Soviet Antarctic program because at the time this is the height of the Cold War. So he has a diary and a lot of the excerpts are online if you want to read it further it's so interesting Um, but the night before his self-surgery he wrote I did not sleep at all last night it hurts like the devil a snowstorm is whipping through my soul wailing like a hundred jackals. Whoa. He also wrote, still no obvious symptoms that perforation is imminent, but an oppressive feeling of foreboding hangs over me. This is it. I have to think through the only possible way out to operate on myself. It's almost impossible, but I just can't fold my arms and give up. In that state of pain, he still managed to work out a really detailed plan for the operation. And so then he assigned all these different roles and tasks for his colleagues to do. Oh, he outsourced. He, he did. The way that he planned to do it was that he would operate through the reflection of a mirror and that people would hand him tools and hold a light and he would look in the mirror to know where his guts all were. Really easier said than done in his case. So he even told them what to do if he lost consciousness and how to ventilate him or give him adrenaline. Major thing is that he could only have local anaesthetic because he had to be fully conscious and he could only have it in his abdomen wall. But once he cut through and removed the appendix, he had to have no pain relief because he needed his mind to be clear so that he could put himself back together, essentially. The most amazing thing is that he writes in his diary that he felt sorry for his assistants. Oh, wow. This is a GP, right? This is a Russian GP, yeah. Oh, my God. Do we know what happened to him in the end? Yeah, so it kind of gets worse and better and more amazing. So very quickly, he worked out that the mirror idea wasn't going to work because the inverted view was too difficult. So he ended up doing the whole operation just by touch. 
Yeah. Did but- you practice on anyone else first? <laughs> That's what I would have done. <laughs> but the most amazing thing is that the surgery was a success and he was back to his normal duties within two weeks on the station. And in hindsight, he made the best choice on that day because a few months later, the ship that was meant to come and take them back to Russia actually couldn't get to them because of very, very severe weather. And for a few weeks, they actually thought that they would be stuck in Antarctica for another year. So if he hadn't done that operation, he would have certainly died. Luckily, however, they did manage to finally evacuate them all through flight. Um, But yeah, he went on to live a very happy life, had children back in Russia, told the BBC all about it. That's fantastic. Um, And just as a note for now, a lot of um, doctors who are quite interested in this part of history, that if we're going to start a colony on Mars or out of space, that anyone going should also have elective appendectomies so that the similar situation doesn't arrive in outer space. So that's all we've got for this episode, but next week we're back and we're talking about transgender health with reporter Penny Durham. And feel free to get in touch if you have any comments or ideas. You can email us or reach out on our socials. Catch you next time.